Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking with uh, members from the Ursay Institute about their work and research. We have two guests with us in the studio. Bernice Pesca-Salito is founding director of the Ursay Institute. She's also senior research program leader for the stigma and social exclusion and for novel T1 to T4 translational research areas. I'm going to ask you about that second one in particular. <laughs> and also Anna Muller is here. She is the Luther Dana Waterman Associate Professor of Sociology and Senior Research Program Leader on the section on preventing death and despair at Ursay. You can join us for the program by calling us at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also follow us, uh, send us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter. Send us your questions or comments there at Noon Edition. Thank you both for being here. Bernice, it's been a while since you've yes. been here, but we're <laughs> happy. You, and now you're in a new role. Mm -hmm. um, just give us an overview. Of what is the Ursa Institute? How did it come to be? Well, I think, I think the impetus for this started about a decade ago when uh, medicine discovered this idea of social determinants of health. Now, that was really curious for us because for about 100 years, social scientists have been looking at that. But there was this, you know, in the history of science, there was this clear division between the body and then society, right? And so when our research and research of people in public health and other disciplines started, you know, uh, being seen by people in medicine, and they were being frustrated by the fact that treatments weren't being taken up by people, or they weren't getting the kind of information on what causes or what are the roots of different kinds of diseases, that they started thinking about this. And so it's been a really incredible decade of science where people who study the body and people who study society have come together. So, you know, what was interesting for us on the Bloomington campus is that the medical school's in Indianapolis, right? And so, yeah, we have a medical program, nursing school, but in general, um, there was this split it, at IU that mirrored that division. And so it's interesting if you look at the departments here at IU, for example, we have one of the top medical sociology programs in the country here. If you look at the O'Neill School, you see they have an extraordinary group of health economists. But we were spread all over campus. So the idea was sort of thinking about a laser, like if we could bring all the social scientists together who study health and medicine and sort of with a laser-like focus then build a bridge to the medical school that maybe we could do a better job of understanding why people get sick, whether they go for treatment, whether they live or die. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how it came came about, not as the Ursay Institute at that point, but as the Sociomedical Sciences Institute. And the Ursay family is the same family that owns the Colts, yes. right? And they, they've done other work on mental health issues. Oh, right? that's amazing. Mm -hmm. We were doing this work and... One night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I saw a PSA, uh, public service announcement, and I recognized Jim Ursay, but I didn't recognize the woman who was with him. And I thought to myself, because they started talking about stigma, which of course is one of my areas of research, and I thought to myself, I must have dreamed that. That must have been like one of those dreams, like I wish this was the case. But about a month later, my chief of staff came to me, Alex Capshu, and she said, did you see these PSAs? Well, where, how that had come about was that um, Brandon Marshall, who was a football player first with the Bears and then with the Jets, um, one time had worn lime green cleats, which is the color of mental health, and he got fined $10,000. 
And he went to the NFL and he said, you shouldn't be penalizing me for my causes, you should be helping. So almost as a direct result of that, the NFL started a program called My Cause, My Cleats. Because players had always had their own interests and their foundations, but what the NFL was asking was, could the franchises step up and take on a cause? And the Colts, much to our surprise, took up kicking the stigma. And they didn't know about us, we didn't know about them. And over time, uh, we started talking to one another, and that's how it became the Ursay Institute. Okay. Well, Anna Muller, so what's your role with, with Ursay? Um, so with Ursay, we have several different focus areas, and one of our focus areas um, is preventing death and despair, um, which is a focus area where we basically do research to improve our ability to prevent suicide, to prevent um, poor mental health outcomes, to prevent addiction, and then, of course, to improve treatment when, when people do experience some of those um, you know, painful and often stigmatizing mental health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm one of the leaders of that area of the Ursay's uh, focus. So, in in your area, I mean, how many people do you work with, or do you do you find researchers from? places outside of IU, or do you work with researchers within IU? How does that work? All of the above, yeah. We have a great, um, a great, like actually probably one of the strongest in the U.S., like um, in terms of groups of social scientists who are working on addiction, suicide, um, and other sort of related issues. So we have a, a wonderful team within the URSA of IU faculty like Hank Green, Bria Perry, Bernice, of course, and myself. Um, and then, you know, we're also sort of beginning um, some synergistic relationships with other or say people because this institute brought us together. Like for me, particularly, I'm developing stronger relationships with our health economists over in the O'Neill School. Um, but then, of course, we all have our relationships beyond IU, and the institute actually really um, provides a nice framework for bringing us together and being able to draw on expertise from outside of the university as well. Okay, good, Lori. Yeah, so speaking of relationships outside, I can't help but mention uh, or ask particularly Bernice about one particular relationship that's had a, a wonderful impact in other areas on IU, which is your relationship with Glenn Close, who uh, has, has a nonprofit, national nonprofit, dedicated to reducing stigma. And the two of you connected as well over that. Can you tell that story and also... Uh, well, why don't you tell the story and I'll have a follow-up question. Okay. All right. So um, I was, I've been doing work on stigma since about the mid-1990s when the work that I was doing, I was interested in how people get into services or how they don't get into services. What are those pathways to care? And we took a different approach here at IU, which is rather than focusing on individual characteristics, we sort of conceptualized those pathways as peopled. Right? So you bounce off other people when you know, they might say something to you or you might ask them. And so that's sort of a social network approach. And um, once we established that, it does look like social networks is a good way to think about this. I started asking, what's in those networks? Mm -hmm. And as a classically trained sociologist, the idea was stigma. And I started looking around for what we knew about contemporary stigma in the US and saw that we hadn't done a national study since the 1950s. And so I called a leading expert um, in stigma, Bruce Link, who was then at Columbia University, who had been doing stigma research. And I said, Bruce, what's the deal? Do, where's, the, where's the literature? What am I missing? And he said, it, it, there isn't any. So he and I decided that we would link arms and go hat in hand uh, to different foundations until we found somebody who was willing to fund a national study. And it was the MacArthur Foundation that funded the first U.S. national stigma study in 1996. And we've done four since then. So say a little more about what it means to do stigma research. So this is obviously the barriers that that exist in society against talking about mental illness, admitting you have an issue, and then, of course, then seek, seeking treatment that I think we can all see has a, a bad effect on people's ability to actually get the help they need. But what does studying stigma look like? Well, I think one of the things it does is it tries to figure out what are the targets for change. 
right? Because I think I think that's one of the reasons that Glenn called me one day. I was just sitting in my office and I picked up the phone and you know the person said, "Hello, this is Glenn Close." And I was like, "Yeah, really? Who is this?" Right? I figured it was one of my graduate uh, graduate um, student colleagues uh, punking me, right? And she said, "No, no, this is Glenn Close. I just read your article in the American Journal of Psychiatry." And I thought, "Yes, Glenn Close reads that religiously." <laughs> so once she finally convinced me that it was she, I. Um, she told me that she was interested in starting an organization with a different tagline. And a tagline is the kind of message that you send out. And up to that point, the message had been, if people would just understand that mental illness was a disease like any other, then we can eliminate stigma, right? Uh, and Glenn was just like, I, you know, I don't know. She said, I want to I start one that really focuses on ending stigma by starting the conversation. I don't think she knew how much that tapped into what I was thinking because, in fact, our studies had shown that Americans believe that it's a mental illness, at least on some level. And so, you know, having campaigns that that, that kept pounding that home are not going to change stigma because there was no relationship in our studies between people who believe that and whether or not they expressed high or low levels of stigma. So we needed a new direction. So it was basically perfect timing for this. So one of our jobs is to understand the roots of stigma. And when you get at the roots, then you can figure out what the targets are for change. So that's a lot of the work that we do. But the other thing that brings Glenn's organization even closer to home here in Indiana is that um, her organization, Bring Change to Mind, has a pipeline now of, um, through middle schools, high schools, and colleges, having students be empowered to take on the issue of exclusion and discrimination and prejudice toward people who are not neurotypical. And it's different than most programs. We're not asking teachers to do more. They've already been asked to do too much, right? It's not, you know, come in and learn about the symptoms of schizophrenia. That just scares people. Um, it really is about the people who are the target of change coming up with the ideas of what will move the needle for their organization. And so uh, in Indiana, the Department of Education funds 100 high schools um, to have this program in Indiana. Uh, they have asked for a pilot study of middle schools now because the message has to change depending on the level of development. Mm -hmm. And then IU here was the pilot site for uh, the National College Program, um, which now is on all eight campuses of IU. And hopefully, um, we're building the infrastructure here at IU to be the, the center of a national dissemination. If, if I could just ask the, for a little clarification, what's in the curriculum, like at the, at the high school level for these students in this program? Well, what, what they do, it's what we call a high-touch program. Mm -hmm. And a high-touch program means that there is a direct connection between um, the advisors in the schools, right, the students, but also a regional manager, which we have two Indiana regional managers, and then the national. And the Colts get involved in this too, right? Because um, one of the things that they do is they do a regional summit. And the Colts have been so generous that we use their practice facility for the Indiana summit, which brings all the high school kids together. And there is no curriculum, and that's really the key. The students get together, and they come up with ideas and events of what's going to move the needle in their high school. And so there are students who really care about this. And their job is to figure out how do you get students who don't care about this or who don't think it's relevant to them to sort of think about this and to learn more about it. So it's really a fun event kind of thing, but also has an underlying learning component. And I think that that's more effective than the traditional either uh, highly manualized program, which is you must do everything exactly the same way. This way, it automatically tailors to the school, you know, and what's interesting to them. I think yeah, the way I think about it is that it's like a it's like a system and a structure that like helps facilitate like youth voices and youth leadership and and that's really actually research has shown that that's incredibly important to both changing stigma, improving like mental health in high schools, in the adolescent populations, as well as just um, and even with suicide prevention, is making sure that kids um, have a really strong leadership role in you know in advancing these 
these sort of mental health agendas themselves for themselves in their own places. And so it provides a system and kind of su- the support um, and then like the infrastructure to like facilitate those youth voices coming forward. Yeah, and what's and I, really nice about that is it matches the, what advocacy groups say, which is nothing about us without us, yeah. with a sociological insight of how you build the structures to have them have that kind of empowerment. So it's, it's kind of a nice blend of the things that we do. Yeah. Well, and I know, Bernice, your classes that you, you teach, undergraduate classes on stigma and have for a long time. Uh, and those are all about coming up with creative approaches to whether it's starting the conversation or reducing sig- stig- uh, stigma. I think I actually have a T-shirt that says uh, stigma sucks, which was one of the <laughs> campaigns from a number yeah. of years ago um, because you had kindly invited me to come in and, and be a judge for some of what the students were doing. And they were amazingly focused and uh, obviously, you were holding them also to a very high standard for what was going to be effective and very much research-based. It was it was a wonderful example of just what you're talking about. And they're freshmen <laughs> or first years. Yeah. Because the other thing that the Ursa does is we're a new 21st century style institute where it's not just about cutting-edge research. We do that, too, and there are expectations on us that we will be very visible nationally and internationally. Um, but we also are integrating... Um, learning for not only graduate students, which is very traditional, but also undergraduate. So one of the things I'm really proud of is that the Ursa Institute actually has a You Bring Change to Mind club room where the students participate in the, you know, they can see what's going on. It fits very well with Jane Jorgensen's idea of her new DEI fellowships, where, you know, learning by watching and being part of. And um, so having that club room in a research institute is really different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very. And I wonder if you could say more about uh, what your research is showing about uh, not just suicide and suicide prevention, but... Um, other factors that are um, contributing to, you know, maybe a current climate in which um, we're, we're seeing mental illness uh, increase it at all age levels. Um, and particularly, I don't want to necessarily pick on social media, but it, mm-hmm. social media is easy to pick on. And I uh, note that just, I think just this week, it was announced a bipartisan bill in Congress uh, protecting gi- kids on Social Media Act or something like that that is uh, requiring parental consent for social media participation for anyone under the age of 18 and barring anyone under the age of 13 from participating at all. Um, so I wonder if you could speak more specifically to the, the issues around social media and, and uh, mental uh, issues of various kinds. Yeah, I mean, so let me start by, by just talking about the social media. I mean, I think it's wonderful if we're gonna get some legislation to protect what children see and what they're exposed to and what they're doing on social media. I think that's like absolutely a really important thing. I know, um, so I, what I've been doing for the last four years is I have um, been collaborating with uh, two school districts that are uh, located in Colorado. And so I spend a lot of time following around school staff um, to understand how they go about preventing suicide. And in through that experience, I've had a lot of opportunities to interview kids, their families, um, school staff members, and also just to see the things that unfold during the school day. And I'll tell you, one of the, the most... Um, to me, as perhaps a, a naive, you know, forty-something who did not grow up with social media, was um, that kids were ending up in the counseling office um, because they were really, really upset by things that someone had randomly shown them that they'd seen on social media. Really traumatizing things that I, as an adult, do not want to like randomly be exposed to. Um, for example, uh, one day some kids watched a live murder um, on social media, and they land in the counseling office. So I'm sorry. Sorry, we need controls, right, over what kids are seeing. That said, social media is very diverse, and it's part of the way that kids connect to each other today. 
And, um, you know, so I, I kind of love the idea just naively off the top of my head of like a bill that like restricts all 13 year olds from getting on social media. Because what happens is what when some parents allow their 10, 11, 12 year olds like in middle school, which is I work in middle schools and high schools, if they allow some 11, 12, 13 year olds to get on social media, but then other kids, their parents don't allow them, those kids actually start missing out on opportunities to go hang out with their friends they're not on the you know Snapchat thread where the plans are being made. And so I've talked with parents and with teens who are trying to navigate this and there are some real costs to like not letting your teenagers, you know, be on social media if that's where the relationships that are so meaningful and so developmentally impro- you know important are happening. And so I kind of like the idea of like our younger folk kind of being collectively excluded. Um, but at some point of course our our kids are going to be engaging in social media, just like many of us. And for some of them, it's going to be a wonderful, positive experience where, and it, it kind of has to do with the content. Like, you know, there's some amazing work by, um, by youth in one of the schools I was working in where they're actually, you know, using social media actually to, to, you know, take on mental health stigma and talk about mental health and well-being and all the strategies they use to cope. It's really beautiful. They also actually promote uh, a no social media, uh, media November, you know, so they're aware of some of the the kind of complexities. But I, I do, you know, when I'm talking to, to families, um, which I do a lot of like community talks, I always try to remember people that it's like, it's a very complex issue and it's here to stay and it's how kids connect with each other. So like, I think as adults, we need to be really careful to listen to kids and to let them sort of help us, especially, you know, older adolescents figure out how to help them manage um, social media so that it can be sort of helpful and safe and a more positive experience. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of really terrible information out there that we want to, you know, especially as parents and adults and kids' lives, be like really cognizant of what they're looking at. We're talking about the work of the Ursay Institute mm-hmm. today, and um, you can reach us. You can ask questions eight one two eight five five zero eight one one, or toll free at eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Bernice, did you want to? Were you going to add something? I was just going to add that it's ironic about social media because um, for kids who are not neurotypical, mm-hmm. it turns out to be really good because mm-hmm. they're the ones, uh, the people who are not neurotypical, whose brains are wired that way, they created social media, right? Mm-hmm. And so for kids who aren't socially competent or, you know, whatever, however you want to call it, easy, comfortable with it, a lot of them. Um, have connected, maybe not necessarily even to their to people in their high schools, but to other groups, gaming groups or whatever. Of course, that can also have a downside, you know, where they get addicted to it. But, you know, I think we have to have a very complex view of social media. I, and I wanted to follow up uh, mm-hmm. also because, you know, your section is on preventing death and despair. Think about despair these days. There are so many issues that kids are facing these days. And you know, we talked before the program a little bit just about mass shootings and mm-hmm. the fact that people are these young people are going to school today and they're not sure whether somebody's gonna walk into the school with a gun or not. I mean, so could you just add to some of these other issues facing youth in particular? But even old people like me, I mean, the, look at politics around and look at, at civil rights being eroded and things like that. It's just there's a lot of despair around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely one of the, the goals of my research project is to try to understand, like, what are the things that kids are coping with today that is causing some of these, you know, concerning um, increasing rates of youth suicide, um, but also just sadness and other anxiety. Um, you know, I know that's something I definitely see also in my college class rooms. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are are really changing right now. I think that that sort of um, destabilize kids' ability to envision their own futures and what it's going to look like. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, of course, I think there's the social media has been increasing and changing things. It's also, um, you know, I definitely have taken notice of the fact that over the same period that we've seen increases in youth suicide rates, we've also seen really dramatic increases in the rate of rampage-style school shootings. And that's really tough for kids. Um, I do work in one community that's been 
pretty highly impacted by multiple Rampage-style uh, school shootings like that have been in close proximity, if not within the school district. And um, living with that fear is quite, it's quite challenging for students. And it's very, I think sometimes it's more tangible and real than some of um, us adults, perhaps who did not grow up with, you know, these uh, active shooter drills um, can really imagine. You know, one of the first things I did when I began my field work was because this was such a big change, is I actually went and participated in one of them. It was was really stressful. And even though the kids had some pretty good ways of managing that stress, because it has been somewhat normalized, we all knew it was a drill. It was done very respectfully with a lot of attention paid to the the mental health aspect of even going through a drill but it was still really stressful and the kids were you know it's it's a thing that we're asking them to go through and they have a sense of like like they like something that kids have said to me is that they they keep their phone on them at all times in case they need to say goodbye to their parents (laughs) which just like gets me every time and that's the world we're offering our children to grow up in right Mm -hmm. so yeah go ahead well, I mean, I was, you know, it's not just that, you yeah. know, I think that's really important. But, um, you know, another thing that's really stressful for kids is the um, absolutely radically increasing cost of college at the same time that college is more essential than ever to getting a meaningful job um, that can provide a, a stable, you know, middle class lifestyle. And, you know, all of those things create pressures on kids to do better, to get that merit scholarship or to qualify, you know, and all of these things create pressures for parents, too. And then parents pass those pressures on to their kids. And it's, you know, so there's a lot of things I think even, you know, so I think the economy, the housing market, um, you know, if adults are fighting and not being very, you know, socially cohesive, which is something we have certainly seen in American politics in recent recent years, you know, that's like an attack on the capital. All of that. Anytime we destabilize society, like that makes it hard for kids to imagine where are they going to fit in in the future, you know, and that's what we need for mentally healthy kids. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a fair question to ask a researcher or not, but I'll ask it. So how does your research at Ursay find solutions or find help for these issues that you've so articulately expressed? Yeah, that's actually a great question to ask me because I spent, um, like, I mean, oh gosh, almost a decade focused on trying to understand why youth suicide and suicide clusters happen in schools. And after that, I was like, okay, that's great. I have a book forthcoming about that. I still work on that. Um, But I also was like, my gosh, what are we going to do to you know, enable schools to do a better job of supporting student mental health. And so that's the project that I'm working on now. And um, specifically, we're thinking about actually, it's very related to mental health stigma, thinking about building mental health safety nets in schools that kids actually feel comfortable using, that like, you know, making systems so that teachers who are not mental health experts feel safe asking a kid a tough question, like directly asking like, hey, I'm just a little worried about you. Um, is there any chance you're thinking about suicide or ending your life? Or you know, do I need to help you get in touch with a counselor? And so right now, that's, um, that's the work that I'm doing is um, how can we help schools take on this enormously important task often without any extra resources. Um, and also, you know, when we've experienced this pandemic and other things that have caused <laughs> so much stress and strain for our, our amazing um, teachers and counselors and other school staff. So, okay. yeah. And I you. think that that's really interesting that, you know, Anna's talking about systems. Mm-hmm. In the research that I do on suicide and on the work I do on stigma, I'm not trying to change individuals. I'm trying to create more inclusive, safer cultures. And if the culture is safer, then students will get a different message of what's happening. And there will be expectations on the rest of us to make sure that they're taken care of. So one of the things that we've been looking at is how uh, risk factors for suicide are not the same depending on where you live. So uh, with one of my colleagues, BK Lee, we've been looking at what we call a sameness effect. And what that means is like if you're unemployed, people always say unemployment's a really huge risk for suicide. Well, it turns out if you're unemployed in Detroit, not so much where everybody else is unemployed and people then say, it's not me, it's the system. But if you're unemployed in Greenwich, Connecticut, 
you know, where everybody is getting on the train, commuting to the city, right, then it's an individual failure. And that dramatically increases the risk for suicide. So when we think about all these problems, the reason why I think the Ursae is so powerful is that you have at the table the mental health providers, Right, people like Leslie Halvershorn, the chair of psychiatry up at the med school. You have the psychologists like Ann Crendel, um, who is looking at you know different factors around the brain and does imaging. You have Ann. Anna looking at, at systems, and like you have me looking at larger cultures. It's a complex problem, and our solutions have to be complex. It doesn't mean they're easy. But when we decided to you know, work with Bring Change to Mind, even though the ultimate outcome is trying to help individuals, it's really about creating safe and stigma-free zones. Yeah. I've been thinking, I, I don't actually know what, uh, there's been a lot of conversation in the in Indiana legislature about uh, putting more money into behavioral health. I haven't caught up with, partly because the session, yeah. but I haven't looked at exactly what they've done. And I wonder if either of you have any more details. I know, I know there have been, there's been a push to ensure that there, is, there are more resources in schools, yeah. uh, as well as more resources in community mental health or community health organizations, and obviously including uh, obviously mental health as well. So that'll be a that'll be a topic for another um, another noon edition. I'm sure to talk more about the state budget. But that was. I'm sure to you as well, very welcome to hear yeah. um, that that's finally seems to be pushing very through. Very exciting. Very exciting effort by the lieutenant governor. Um, there's going to be a roundtable coming up soon. One of the most exciting things for us, and I don't even think Anna knows this yet, is that we received a call from the head of DMHA to ask the URSA to be front and center at not only helping shape some of those things, but also in evaluating what's working and what's not working. So I, th- I don't think anybody quite knows. I know we're trying to create emergency systems, but um, mm-hmm. I think how it how it plays out is something that we'll know a lot more of in the next six months. Yeah. My recollection, and you know, our producer um, may be able to find some more specifics, but I think uh, a lot of money was passed in the budget for mental health. It wasn't as much as the governor had asked for, but it was still a pretty healthy amount. That's yeah. okay. You know, That's we always right. say that, that part of the problem for mental health organizations is that they're fighting over crumbs. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, if we had, you know, mental health issues have a very high prevalence in the U.S. And um, we do not get the uh, same parallel amount of resources for research or treatment um, as, say, heart disease and cancer. That's always been the case. You know, we don't have a mental health moonshot. It would be nice if we did. Um, because not only is mental health important, but when you think about those other devastating diseases, when people get hit with those, it has implications for their mental health. So mental mm-hmm. health is everywhere. What, uh, this may be an unfair question to ask, <laughs> but I'll ask it of both of you. What would a mental health moonshot look like? I mean, you can imagine it in cancer. We're going we're gonna to eliminate lung cancer or breast cancer. Uh, and there's obviously research going on and looking at genetic markers and so forth. Is the, is the moonshot in mental health, are there parallels there? Is it going to be more biological research? Well, what would I, that look like? I, I don't think we could, you know, bio, biological, if we can get at the roots. But, you know, the genetic research has come out to be very complicated. I think they've identified a, a thousand genes for schizophrenia. I think our first step is to have the mental health system look more like the cancer system or heart disease system. The mental health system in America is broken. Um, we closed the hospitals. But the money that was supposed to go into wraparound services got uh, sucked up by different crises, like the oil crises in the 70s, right? So I think if we can fix the system to start, I think that we can, I think there's, there's, you know, most of the money that goes into research for mental health does go to biology. So I think that, you know, we have that work going on, but what is the poor stepchild or mental health services? Do you see the Ursae as part of that systemic approach? Well, I don't think we're going to be doing treatment. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. 
I don't think that would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, I always say, if, like, you know, people always say, well, when you go on an airplane, do you say, do you put Dr. Pescocilito? And I say, no, because I don't want them running. Somebody has a heart attack, and I'll go, well, it looks like your social class is, uh, you know, upper middle, you know. So um, I don't think we'll be doing that, but what we will be working with Leslie Hulvershorn in a proposal that she has uh, to think about making sure that all the care that happens in Indiana is evidence-based, which is not the case right now. And so uh, we need to have more focus on workforce development, which is very important to the Colts. That's one of the things that they've made clear to us. It's not just the research, but they want to see us involved in education, and they want to see us helping in terms of issues in the community. So the state budget had $100 million in funds over two years, over the two years of the state budget. So $50 million a year. And I think the governor did want more than that, but that's still yeah. still significant. We'll take it. Right. More than it's been. Yes. So, yeah. so uh, with respect to the work that you're saying, this on so many levels sounds like a huge step forward in terms of what Indiana University is doing uh, with respect to interdisciplinary research. It's a wonderful model for how those kinds of things need to be organized. Um, are you looking at, uh, like, an Ursa Institute branded publication that might be an, uh, a channel for ensuring that this work is is really getting out. Obviously, you're all publishing in various uh, various other places that are important, very important to be seen in. But I'm just curious to know whether you know a, a, some kind of publication like that or a, or a communication yeah. outlet wouldn't also. Um, bring more attention to this area. That's a great idea, Lori. I don't think we've gotten there. As you yeah, may know, totally. that uh, the original date for move into Morrison Hall was November, mm-hmm. and uh, we're still not there. So, <laughs> so let us get let us all get together and get our computers hooked up and see where we go from for there. Sure. But I, I think sure. I think that one of the things that we strive for at the Ursa is that when we do publish that we do two things, that we publish in venues that um, are read by lots of providers and people and advocacy groups, politicians, et cetera, and also that we translate that information to the public, right, in different ways, whether that means that we show up for um, different meetings that we're asked to go to, um, that we respond to calls like from the DMHA. All of that, I think, is, again, part of the new style, which is the translational aspects to get things in the pipeline uh, much, much more quickly in terms of, of, you know, from science to society, from science to social action. You reminded me of a question I have to ask you about the novel T1 to T4 translational research area. Yeah, let me. I love this study. Um, I, I it's, it's it's in a little trouble right now, but let me give you the exciting part of it. Um, so um, the CTSI, the Clinical Translational Sciences Institute, which is located in the medical school, is one of our partners, um, and. Um, one of the questions they asked us is like, well, what are you going to take on at the URSA? And one of the things that we know about health in the state of Indiana is that we have terrible, um, terribly high levels of obesity and diabetes. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not one who believes that obesity is a disease. I believe it's a, a health problem um, that, you know, can, is one of many things that can lead to diabetes, right? Um, but, you know, the traditional approaches to dealing with obesity are ones that I don't think have worked very well. And so uh, we started thinking about, and again, here comes the O'Neill School. They had brought in uh, the lawyer whose movie, the, his work was based on the, uh, produced the movie Dirty Waters. And we started thinking about these PFOA chemicals. And what we did was we put together a group of people. Um, actually, Jeff Zaleski did this. He put, he's a chemist. He put together a group of people, and we started you know, asking, what's an interesting new way to think about this? And so um, they introduced me to the concept of obesogens, and I had never heard of that. And I guess that can refer to things like genes that predispose people to obesity or uh, chemicals that can predispose, that, that uh, affect your metabolism. So I turned to some of the O'Neill people who are you know, chemists and they do work in the environment, and I said, do we have evidence that there are chemicals that change people's metabolism? 
So what we did was we the first part of the funding went to chemists and people in biology using our Drosophila, you know, our famous Drosophila store here at IU. And one of the things I did not know was that you can make a fly fat. And so what they did was they had two sets of flies. One got fed regular fly food, like I don't want to know. And <laughs> the other flies got fed PFO. PFOAs, right, these forever chemicals. And I have never seen a graph as powerful as the one as Jason Tennyson, who's one of the faculty members here in biology, showed of what uh, what the lipid cells looked like in the two different fly groups. They were circles, and in one, the circles were pretty small, but, you know, different shapes. In the other one that was fed the PFOAs, they were gigantic, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these things where we blame individuals for obesity may be related to the kinds of chemicals that exist in our water. You know, one of the things about Indiana that is not one of our shining stars is that we have the most polluted waterways in the United States. Now, we're not bad people. We're the agricultural, one of the agricultural breadbaskets of America, and those waterways are polluted because of agricultural runoff. So that is one of the things that we need to think about is stop blaming individuals, you know, and you see that with this Ozempic craze that's happening, right? All these people have had trouble losing weight. You give them this shot that changes their metabolism and the weight drops. It's, their motivation didn't drop. What changed was something about their metabolic system. And these chemicals in the environment are something that's working against us. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that because that the uh, uh, Ozempic and uh, Munjaro and those those drugs are very much in the news, and that appears to be that there is this physiological um, response that turns off the desire to exactly. eat, which we all have sooner exactly. or later, and some people just have it a lot later. And these chemicals, which include things like Teflon, get rid of your right. Teflon pans, please. Right, um, that these th that this is actually having the other effect on our metabolic system. I don't know anything about that, right? Now, my, so the next phase was they did flies, they did zebrafish, and they did mice, right? And then the next question was, what about humans? Mm -hmm. So what they did, our person-to-person -person health interview study that we've been doing as part of the grand challenge, um, we went to our people that we had interviewed. We have 2,000, a, random sa a representative sample of 2,000 people in Indiana. That exists. So the next step was we know who is got a BMI over 30. We know people who don't. So we went and we had re we had previously consented them for future contact. And we went and we asked 40 people in each of those groups to give us some blood, which they did. And then the chemists and the biologists went to work on that and are showing similar effects on human blood in terms of what lipid, lipid looks like in the blood uh, from the PFOAs. All right. Fascinating stuff. We have about 10 minutes to go. If you have a question, 812-855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348. Send it to us, news at indianapublicmedia.org or on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have had one question. Uh, question says, are there programs and internships for IU students to work at Ursay and learn more about the, the work of Ursay? Yes. Um, there are uh, fellowships from the graduate school that uh, Dean Dalecki has given us, um, and we currently have a cohort of about 13 students who will be moving in with us to the Ursay, who come from all different disciplines across uh, this campus and the Indianapolis campus, whose focus is on health of one sort or another. Now, built into that is a mentorship with one of the, the faculty from the Ursay. The application had to come in with that mentorship. The other thing is that I mentioned earlier Jane Jorgensen's uh, fellowship, and she has invited the Ursay um, to have students apply for a graduate or undergraduate internship there, yeah. and we are excited about that. Yeah, Jane, just for those who don't, Jane is a, a longtime philanthropist and um, supporter of a number of things um, at Indiana University, and very grateful to her. Um, these are these fellowships are, are graduate 
fellow, I, I realize what Jane's doing is focusing also on undergraduates, yes, but the, the ones that you've either. been funded for, are those, are those graduate fellowships? They're, they're graduate because okay. they come out of the graduate right, school. Right. You know, it's, it's not that we're not open to undergraduates. It's just that that's the funding that we've received for that additional component, yeah. which is, again, unusual in a, in a uh, research institute. Yeah, and I would say that if anybody's interested, they can always reach out to individual um, members of the Ursa Institute. I know I um, just had a student finish up a research internship who was an undergrad um, who did my who was on my project, which is part of the Ursa. So we have a lot of flexibility and interest in mentoring next generation folks who are going to be working on mental health and other related topics. That's wonderful. We have a question about this being. Mental Health Awareness Month. Does that make any difference to to Ursa? Have you planned anything big, or does it tie in at all? Or do you just it's tw- twelve yeah. months a year is Mental Health Awareness Month. <laughs> well, yeah. Know? Well, we May is difficult for us because the students are all leaving. Mm-hmm. So we tend to focus pretty heavily on October, which is another um, another month that's devoted toward uh, mental health. So we probably don't have anything in the works right now. We're just trying to make sure that um, we are graduating our graduate students uh, attending commencement, which is where Anna just came from, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, getting things lined up for the summer and for the fall. So, but we do we do like to take any opportunity where mental health is uh, being highlighted to sort of jump on that as an opportunity. Uh, so I'm very interested in this the idea that you've just set up this center and since what, in the last couple of years, right? What have you learned in the time of setting up the center? Are there big lessons that you've learned about sort of creating this new thing? (laughs) That's really an interesting question. Um, I learned that you can do it. Um, I learned that you have to be, I often refer to myself as a junkyard dog with a new tire, uh, because you have to convince people that a novel structure in the university is the way to go. Um, but I believe we are, I believe higher education is at a point of critical change. And so I would like to see IU be at the front of the wave. And, you know, I have to say, the, you know, the response of many of the deans and chairs and certainly the faculty has been really exciting about this. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going, higher education is going through a change in just the number of students who will be coming to the university um, in terms of what the state expects from us. So, um, so I think this was an institute whose time was right. Mm-hmm. In in suggesting that we have a new a new structure in terms of thinking about this, and it's in some ways it's unique to the Bloomington campus in the sense that the medical school or IU the medical school is not here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I think doing this and you know being more of a together university is going to help everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anna, I want to get your reaction to that, too. I mean, this is new. This is a new kind of structure for you. How do you feel very comfortable in the structure? Has it taken some getting used to? I mean, I feel wonderful. It definitely, I mean, I I will say I was trained at one of the largest pop centers in the United States at the University of Texas Population Research Center. So for someone like me, in order to like accomplish the research and the translation work that I want to do, I actually really need the URSA. I need the infrastructure. I need the system actually to help me, like to facilitate the work that I um, would like to do. And and it's been just absolutely marvelous so far. It's really, I think I'm, I'm relatively new to IU. I've been here four years, and this is like giving me the home that I need to really thrive, so. Yes, we stole Anna from the University of Chicago, I'm always proud to say. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I think that, you know, there are people who don't want to do this kind of work, and that's perfectly fine, too. You know, one of the things that I think is important to the Ursay is that the people who come from the different social sciences are deeply trained in their own discipline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the other part is that they're willing to sit at a table where, you know, 
back when I started, you know, we were still arguing nature versus nurture, right? Mm. And so maybe it wasn't possible back then, but now we know it's nature through nurture, right? Or nurture through nature or whatever in concert mm. with nature. So I think the time is right in science for this to happen. Um, and I think there's room for people who do that fundamental, basic, disciplinary work, which it, it, in the sociology department we do anyway, but to have that extra layer where we think about how all the pieces come together is can really be inspiring for us. So, yeah. um, And I think it makes a lot of sense. It, it does make the science harder. You know, it's easier to, you know, come up with your little piece of the world and then just go after it. But, you know, you have so much space. Let's give an example of doing social interviews, right, or giving interviews, right? Um, you know, people only have so much tolerance for being asked questions, right? So for the scientists, what that means is, like, we really have to have good arguments for why we need those five questions, right? And, you know, what and who gets what amount of space. It's not a matter of who has the power to claim the space. It's about what is the scientific argument about how these pieces come together yeah. and which pieces we need to be able to make the more complex mm -hmm. argument. And this should be no surprise to IU, the home of Eleanor O. Ostrom, right. you know, whose who's complex systems thinking, you know, was certainly front and center for me for many, many years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So and we have about two minutes left, I think. Um, what's next, uh, if we have time, for the Ursae Institute, first and foremost, and anything either of you, both of you want to add about your own personal research projects? Well, uh, I think for the Ursae Institute, we're going to get together and, you know, experience that synergy. Uh, one of the things I'm most excited about in my own research is that um, I believe we have uh, just gotten a recent grant in our work with the Huntsman Mental Health Institute um, at the University of Utah to do the next two national stigma studies, one focused on children's problems and one focused on adult problems. And so in 2024, we'll see the next dot to see which have we moved the needle more. Um, hopefully things aren't going backwards. And so that's for me exciting. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Bernice just said about the Ursae. I think for me, um, in the next couple of years, I'll be rolling out some uh, new uh, publications on how to help schools do a lift up suicide prevention in a way that feels sustainable, um, effective, and equitable for students. So that's what I have on my horizon and pretty thrilled to have the collaborators at Ursae to help me mm -hmm. accomplish that. All right. We are out of time. I want to thank you both so much for being here with us today. Bernice Pesca-Solito is the founding director of the Ursae Institute, and uh, you'll be in Morrison Hall when? How soon? I Do think, you hope? I think that we'll have everything nailed down in about, I would say, a month or six weeks. All right. And, <laughs> That's uh, knocking on wood. All right. And also, Anna Muller has been here with us. She is the Luther Dana Waterman Associate Professor of Sociology, and she is a researcher with the Ursae Institute. For Lori McRobbie and our producer, Nathan Moore, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thank you for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org and from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.